Uh, right, um, welcome. Uh, welcome, uh, first of all, to the LSE uh, and to this event, which is part of the LSE's sixth Space for Thought Literary Festival. Uh, and the title of this particular session is Sonic Landscapes, Understanding the World Through Sounds. I'm David Hendy from the University of Sussex, and with me today is, I think, the ideal panel of speakers to explore how we can open our ears to the world of sound and how that might enrich our sense of ourselves and our place in the world. And I'll introduce them shortly, but first um, I should just explain briefly what's going to happen for the next hour and a half. Uh, each of our three speakers will be speaking for about 15 to 20 minutes. And then uh, at the end there will be, uh, if we're on schedule, 30 to 40 minutes uh, for questions and answers. Uh, and we will definitely finish at 6.30. I'm under severe instructions to make sure that we finish on time for the next event. Um, there will be an opportunity to get uh, copies of uh, Trevor's book afterwards. I was originally going to say signed copies, but um, as you might be able to see, uh, the best you might be able to hope for is, is a simple scrawl or an X maybe. I'm not quite sure. Um, but they will be on sale in the bookstall just outside. We're being recorded, and it's hoped that a podcast of this event will be available online soon. We like sound. We love all sorts of sound, all of us in this room. But could I ask you please to put your mobile phones on silent for the next hour and a half? And finally, there is a Twitter hashtag. Where would we be without a Twitter hashtag? Uh, in this case, it is hash, hashtag LSE Lit Fest. Okay, let me introduce uh, our speakers. We have uh, Trevor Cox, who is Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford, a past president of the Institute of Acoustics. He's presented numerous radio documentaries and written extensively about acoustics. His book, Sonic Wonderland, A Scientific Odyssey of Sound, is a brilliant fusion of physics and music, neuroscience, architecture, and all sorts of other things. It's had some glowing reviews, um, and quite rightly. Uh, uh, the Observer uh, has described Trevor Cox as a David Attenborough of the acoustic realm. Uh, so uh, if you don't leave here buying his book, you'd be mad. Uh, we have Caroline Devine, um, who's actually going to take us to other worlds entirely. Uh, Caroline is a composer and sound artist who's especially interested in the voices and the sounds that exist just beyond the threshold of ordinary perception. Things like radio transmissions, extraplanetary hisses and rumbles and pulses. And intending, attending to these sounds might encourage us, uh, she suggests, to a form of deep listening. She's currently Leverhulme Artist in Residence with the Solar and Stellar Physics Group at the University of Birmingham. And we have Alex Kolkowski, also a composer and sound artist, 
who looks to the audio technologies of the past for inspiration, really, though, to help us to listen differently to the present. He's reviving the art of the wax cylinder phonograph and mixing it playfully with wind-up gramophones, live musicians, and even occasionally singing canaries. Alex has been a sound artist in residence at the Science Museum here in London, and his latest project involves a giant loudspeaker which will be unveiled at the Science Museum in May. Um, and we're going to start with Trevor. Good afternoon. I, I want to think about sounds that we might meet, not only in our everyday, but the more extraordinary sounds we might meet in our travels. Because I had this idea a few years ago of where would I go on holiday if I wanted to take my ears on my holiday and actually go listening, as opposed to just going out to take pictures or have experiences. And the interesting thing is, if you pick up an average guidebook, you'll find that most of them have very little to say about sound. Most of them, like lots of our texts, are dominated by imagery, dominated by the visual, whether that's beautiful vistas or whether it's uh, wonderful architecture to look at. And there are a few exceptions. I guess one exception you might meet would be, in London, would be St Paul's Cathedral Whispering Gallery. I guess a few of you have probably been to the Whispering Gallery of St Paul's. But that's really quite a rare, you know, rare example. Mostly in guidebooks, you find very little about sound. So I started collecting ideas for places to go and see. And let me give you, or even here would be better, and let me give you an example of one to start with. So I'm going to count down four sounds. So the first one is in this place here. So this is Mojave Desert. You can turn around if you want. There's a few pictures. You don't need to look at them if you don't want to. This is Mojave Desert. This is Kelso Dunes. And Kelso Dunes is one of 40 places which has a very unusual sound effect. And as soon as you climb up on this dune... If you go there in the heat of the summer like I did, you'll immediately notice a strange sound as you walk on the dune. That's actually my footsteps walking up the dune. And it's something that you need just the right conditions for that to happen. So it's quite a rare phenomenon. The, the grains of the sand all need to be roughly the same size. There needs to be not too many little bits getting in the way of the grains moving easily. The grains have to have the right varnish. They have to be roughly spherical. And they also have to be very dry, which is the reason you have to go there in the heat of the summer when it's over 40 degrees Celsius and incredibly hot. And that sound is called in the scientific literature, it's called a burping sound. I mean, I think it's a bit more like a badly played musical instrument, a bit like a tube or something being played. But that actually isn't the famous sound here. The famous sound you create with an avalanche. And there's two ways it's created. If you're lucky when it's really windy, the avalanche will create the sound on its own just by the wind picking up sand and creating an avalanche. And when that happens, the sound can be really loud. It can be heard a mile away. It reaches over 100 decibels. It's an incredibly loud sound. But when I was there... The wind wasn't doing its game, so I had to do it myself. So what you do is you sit down on your backside and you scoot down on it and create an avalanche. And then you get this sound.
like droning sound. It's a bit like a, an aircraft taxiing or something like that. That is the, that's the singing sand dunes. And they're actually written about for, for many centuries. I mean, Marco Polo wrote about them. Charles Darwin wrote about them. There's old ancient Chinese writings talk about them as well. And they're an example of a phenomena which I just think, you know, going to this place is obviously visually very beautiful, but actually they're somewhere which is just magical for your ears. So I think what I wanted to try and do when writing my book was open people's ears up to the most remarkable sounds in the world. And that's partly just a sort of discovering of listening and what's out there to be enjoyed. And so you can enjoy things, you know, even in your everyday life as you go for the city. At the moment, I'm really enjoying hearing the birds sing. The birds in Manchester are just starting to sing because they suddenly realise spring is on its way. And I hear it as I cycle into work up until the point I got run over this week. Uh, I would hear snippets of bird song. It's very delightful. Um, and, but it's also, I think, when you go to certain places, listening is really imperative. And this is a really good example. Um, and it's number three and that's Stonehenge, or any ancient site. Because if we go back to these ancient sites, it's very easy to go to a place like this and look at it and wonder how they got the stones there and think about what the purpose of it was and snap some pictures. But actually, prehistoric man, we've got to think that sound was incredibly important to prehistoric man, probably more important than to modern man in our visually dominated world. You've got to remember it's a stage where, you know, there's no writing, so if you want to pass information from one person to another, you're going to do it orally. It's also a stage where um, it's probably much, it's a much more dangerous time. So you're listening out for danger a lot more often. And as a hu- humans, have our early warning system from behind is our hearing. We don't have a good sense of smell. Our eyes face front. So if someone's going to creep up behind and attack us, it's going to be our hearing that's going to give us that warning. So there's some good arguments to be said that prehistoric man probably treated the senses more in balance than we do in the modern world. But if you want to hear the sound of Stonehenge... I wouldn't recommend going there. And the reason I wouldn't recommend going there is, unfortunately, a lot of the stones are missing. And although it looks quite complete there, actually, if you go around the other side, you'll find loads that are not there. What you need to do is find a replica. And the best replica of Stonehenge is in America. And it looks like that. So this is a replica of Stonehenge built to, to commemorate uh, people who died during World War I. Um, so quite timely, given the, uh, all the commemorations about World War I going on at the moment. It's in Mary Hill. And it's built out of concrete, but the difference between concrete and stone isn't really that important. And it's a complete replica. All the stones are in place. They're in the right places for one of the layouts of Stonehenge from prehistoric time. And a couple of my uh, people I've collaborated with, Bruno Fazenda and Rupert Till, went there and recorded sound. So let me give you a sense of what Stonehenge would have sounded like. So I'm going to play you two sounds. The first sound is just a dry recording of some singing. So it's like we're in the middle of the field, away from anything. So you get a sense of what it would be like if there was no structure there at all. Then the second one will be when we've got Stonehenge playing, and you'll hear the effect. Now, there's a few things you could listen out for. The first thing you might notice immediately is it's quite a bit louder in Stonehenge than in the open world, in the open air environment to start with. And the other thing is it's what I would call coloration. There's a change in the timbre, a change in the tone of the voices that you'll hear. So we'll play, first of all, this is no Stonehenge to start with. Was that loud enough? 
do we have, because the volume control doesn't go much higher with that, can you just ask the guy at the back, he's the sound man who's not looking at me? Because I think they're all going to be too quiet, because that's not actually terribly quiet recording. We'll just do that one more kind of time. Oh, it could be the other computer, of course, could be. If I play it now, can you check if we can get it loud enough for them? Because it's a bit quiet. Sound up a bit, is that all right? Thank you. feedback if we turn it up too high. Is there anything more we can do? Yeah, that's as hard as it goes before the feedback starts. Two seconds and then I'll carry on plough on the rack regardless. I think you might have to. Okay. Um, so well that was it's quite quite quiet, but that's the dry recording. This one's a bit louder so hopefully it'll be a bit more audible. This is the recording inside Stonehenge then. Oh, my hat is frozen to my head. My feet are like two lumps of lead. I'm stuck out here, half drenched, half dead. From standing under your window, oh, let me in. The soldier cried, oh, hanging with me, I oh, let me in. The soldier cried, oh, I'll not come back again. So hopefully, I know you couldn't hear the first one, but you can hear a sense of being... There's a sense that it's much fuller sound when you get Stonehenge in place. And there's good arguments to say that places like this, sound must have been important. If you think of any human ritual, it usually involves some form of singing, some form of speaking, and some form of sounds of some form. So it would seem logical if they used this site, not this one obviously, but the original Stonehenge for ritual, that sound would have been important. And actually the sound of Stonehenge would have been really unusual to prehistoric man. We live in an ins- you know, a world full of concrete. We're used to being inside rooms, listening to reflections. Prehistoric man was not used to listening to lots of stone reflections. He would have got them in caves, but they would have been much more unusual to hear in a stone circle and much more remarkable. Which made me think, where could I take you where the sound would be remarkable to a modern ear? And if you really want to hear something remarkable, you need to go to a fairly unusual space. And I, so I'll take you to this one here, which is a spherical room. So this is a place in... Uh, West Germany, uh, in the western side of Berlin, sorry, in Germany, and right at the top there is a spherical room. Now, it's not meant designed for acoustic purposes, it's actually a ray dome. What it was was there was a listening station there. I don't know if anyone remember up in Filingdale, you used to have the golf balls which used to cover over the listening equipment up in Filingdale. It's the same thing. And so that ray up there was a ray dome to protect antennae which was being used to spy on the east. So this was built by the British and Americans during the Cold War to spy on East Germany and Russia. Um, but, and as you can see, it's not in the best of repairs, this place. It's uh, quite dangerous. When you go in, you have to sign an affidavit to say, if you fall over, it's your own fault. If you fall down and kill yourself, that's your own lookout. Um, but inside, there's the most amazing effects you get from this spherical room. 
And it is quite unusual. So the first thing I noticed is I, I carry a recorder around with me. I unzipped my bag to get the recorder out. And though I was unzipping my bag from below, it sounded like I was unzipping it from on top of my head. Because the sound was going up, hitting this great curved ceiling, and being focused right down on me. And it made me think the sound was coming from a, a top rather than down in my bag. And if you clap your hands, you get this amazing ricocheting sound. And I'll, I'll play it a couple of times so you can get a sense of what it's like. So this is standing in the middle on the old antennae concrete plinth and clapping my hands. So you hear that going jigger 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 jigger. Each one of those is a sound. Oh, one. Each one of those is a sound going up, being focused, coming back, going up, being focused, and coming back, going up, being focused, and coming back. So you get this rhythmic sound that you wouldn't get in, in any other space except for when you've got these very strong focuses. I think. Um, and another effect you can get is I went to, first off that one of the few sites which is a tourist site with sound is the Whispering Gallery of St Paul's Cathedral, and you can get Whispering Gallery effects in here. So a Whispering Gallery effect in St Paul's, you go up to the first floor you have this great big dome curved wall and you whisper into it and the sound whizzes around and you can talk to someone who's right on the other side of the dome which is kind of like the back of this room it's a long way away what happens is the sound sticks to the inside of the curved surface it's a property of physics that was worked out maybe 120 years ago what exactly goes on in that space it's exactly the same as a curved dome you can talk into this dome and the sound will skim around the edge but the great thing about being in this derelict listening station it's because it's a listening station, you can make lots of noise. So whispering gallery in support of you, are a bit respectful of it being a, a cathedral, and you whisper. In here, I got some balloons out, and burst some balloons. So you can hear it properly. And what happens when you make a big sound is it not only does it go to the other side of the dome, it then keeps going round into circuits. And so each time you hear a jigga jigga jigga, that's one circuit of the entire dome being done. You can hear about five or six. I don't know on this sound system whether you'll hear them all. Again, I'll play you three balloon bursts, and you'll hear them each time. And each time you hear a different separate sound in each balloon burst, that's it doing a circuit of the dome. So there's a place which I think is unusual to our modern ear. And I'll take you to one more unusual architectural space. Um, and the book's got lots of other things in it as well, like natural sounds and stuff. But obviously I only have a, a sample I've brought along today. And I thought if I was going to bring one, the one I had to bring was the one I got a world record for. And there's a certificate which, uh, for my world record. Um, and um, it's, it's a most amazing place. Let me play you first of all the sound that effectively got me the record. So we had to go and measure what's known as the reverberation time. So if you go into a cathedral and play the organ and stop, the sound echoes around the space for a few moments before dying away. It's a few seconds. If you go into a concert hall, the orchestra plays the last note, the orchestra stops, the sound still lingers in that place. That lingering of the sound for a few seconds is reverberation. And so what I had to do in this place was make a sound and let the sound linger for a bit. Um, and to make a standard measurement, this place is not easy to measure in. I used a starting pistol, which is a very quick and easy way to make a measurement in acoustics. So this was actually the sound that got me the world record.
Now, mindful, we lost a few minutes earlier on, and I don't think we can quite hear that all the way to the end, but it goes on for some time. It also goes, it drops into the background here. Actually, the recording is over a minute long. So the sound in there, instead of lasting, say, the few seconds, it would say in something like, uh, like a concert hall, it lasts, in, as the record says, 75 seconds is the actual record that Guinness gave to it. Um, and it's the most incredible space. And uh, it's not a space that is easy to get into, and um, that's how uneasy it is to get into. Um, so this is actually the pipes you have to go in to get into it. So it's an oil tank. So it was built for it just in the run-up to the Second World War, and it was to store shipping oil. So it's buried into the side of a Scottish hill up near Inverness, and it was buried into the side of the hill so it was protected from German bombing. And there was never a door in it, because it was never intended you ever go into it. So the squaddies, when they had to do repair work, had to go through the pipe work. And that, what that torch is on is a five, six-foot-long metal... I know it's almost like a sort of tray you lie on and you get shoved down the pipework and that's how you get into the place. To give you a sense of the width, it's a bit narrower than the width of my shoulders. You do get a bit crushed as you go through. Um, so it's not the, not the most pleasant end, openings, but inside it is, of course, vast. And so it's about a quarter the size of St Paul's Cathedral. So it's, it's pretty big. It's about a couple of football pitches long. And all the pipework you see around there is what was used to heat the oil to make the shipping oil move. Shipping oil is really viscous and really hard to move. This one's actually been cleaned, but I can tell you I trashed lots of stuff in there. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty smeared with shipping oil everywhere. And uh, it doesn't look anything like that when you're in there. This is beautifully lit. There is no mains electricity. I had a head torch on. You can't see anything very much in that space because it, it's such a vast space. And I thought um, I would finish up. I think we've got us back on time. We'll be all right. I thought to finish up, I'd just play you a bit of music in there. Now, I didn't take my... my uh, I played saxophone normally. Obviously, I don't play at the moment. Um, but I, I played saxophone. And I didn't take one with me, which I'm really fortunate, because I think I would have ruined it, given I ruined lots of other stuff. Um, but we can use techniques that we use in acoustic engineering all the time to simulate how sounds would be. It's called oralisation. We can simulate how, what sounds would be like in a space given the measurement I made with the gunshot. So that's what I did. I made a recording of my saxophone in our anechoic chamber and then combined it with that impulse response to give you a sense of what it sounds like. Now, unfortunately, this sound system's got a lot of interesting colouration on it, as we shall find out later on as we listen to more sounds. But what you might hear here in this short piece is how there's extra sounds which appear to not be in the saxophone notes to start with, sort of kind of keep re- reappearing in this piece. It's a couple of minutes long. It's called Cuckoo by uh, Barry Cockcroft. It was the start of it. Um, it's not the whole thing.
stopped playing at that point, by the way. I'll use that to speak to go out. Come back to the chair. Thank you very much, Trevor. I'm going to hand the floor straight over to Caroline Devine. Great, thank you. That's amazing sounds. Um, I'd like to talk today about my practice in general and some of the different ways in which I listen um, and use sound to explore the world around me. But I can't get my paper to stay on this thing. <laughs> I'm afraid I haven't learned it all. Um, I'll introduce a few of my works before discussing my work, Five Minutes Oscillations of the Sun, and the collaboration begun during that project that that has led to my current artist residency. So my practice explores the boundary between sound and music, and it's about the transformation of space through sound. Um, I hope this may provide new ways to listen through the exploration of acoustic phenomena and auditory perception. I source the sounds and signals, the raw material for my works, from the sounds and signals that surround us. My approach to composition investigates microtones rather than the traditional Western musical scale, and it includes a consideration for the possibilities afforded by technology to capture, manipulate, and transform signals within my works. I have a particular interest in the use of space as a compositional parameter and in listening to signals that exist in a realm beyond the audible. My practice frequently concerns the pursuit of sounds, signals or sometimes voices that may be ignored, imperceptible to human hearing or that are absent or immaterial in some way. So, Recording Contract Recordings was a work that examined an absent voice. voice. And that was the legal voice and the language that underpins the commercial recording industry. Um, The work also considered the relationship of power that exists within systems for the distribution of sound and music. I wanted to draw out that hidden legal voice using the materials and processes of commercial record production. So text from an artist's recording contract was recorded by an actor. The recording was mastered onto vinyl and a dub plate was produced. The vinyl disc was at the centre of a multi-channel sound installation that comprised vinyl, scat static, backing vocals, test tones and other fragments relating to record production. It's a bit quiet. I designed a 14-channel system to distribute the work throughout the gallery and into the public square outside through horn speakers, more commonly recognised as a system for public address. The disc revolved on repeat, constantly describing and defining itself for the seven weeks of the exhibit. I thought of the work as an exploded version of a consumer item that is bound up in rights issues. Recording contract recording strips the vinyl record of its pop cultural veneer to expose the legal basis that underpins it. This is a recording from the gallery, hopefully. Oh, 
My practice usually involves an initial period of research and active listening. Depending on the nature of my inquiry, this could entail an almost forensic study of the acoustic character of a site, making field recordings as well as digging through archives or conducting interviews. The resultant works can be as much about what is absent from a space or existing beyond the realm of our perception as what can be experienced within it. Carrier Waves Left and Right Channels is a sound installation, the material for which I gathered over several months from the sounds and signals of derelict buildings at Bletchley Park Codebreaker Centre. I was granted access to the blocks along with three other artists, one of whom, Rachel Marshall, took these images of the abandoned spaces that give some idea of the dereliction. I spent long periods recording and listening to the near silences of the blocks. My work comprised, my work comprised resonances from the empty rooms, hydrophone recordings I dredged up from the lake, and electromagnetic emissions from the air that surrounded the blocks. Pigeons had taken over the site and were living within the buildings, which provided both a fascinating sound source and a strangely apt link with the wartime carrier pigeons. The electromagnetic emissions I gathered around the site resonated with the developments in communications technology that were nascent in the code-breaking work that took place at the park. While working on the project, I, intended, I attended a, an amateur radio course on Wednesday evenings in a freezing cold generator house at the park in order to learn more about radio propagation and gain my amateur radio license. My days were spent making recordings in the seemingly abandoned blocks opposite. Hostile enough by day, they looked especially forbidding at night. There was a covert nature to this situation that provided a dimension of secrecy to my own project. The resulting work was my response to the absence, silence and secrecy of the buildings, their histories and their significance with regard to modern communications technologies. The work of all four artists was exhibited at Station X, installed initially in a gallery space and then moved to the Alan Turing Hut 8 at Bletchley Park where it remained until November of last year. So here are some of the sounds I gathered. I may cut it a bit short. talk now about two particular types of signal that I've used in recent works, both of which require transformation before they can be experienced as sound. The first group of signals are naturally occurring radio signals in the VLF band. They exist within roughly the same frequency range as human hearing, which is between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz, but, and they surround us all the time, but they cannot be heard because they, rather than sound pressure waves that can be picked up by areas, they are electromagnetic waves. VLF signals provide a way to know more about what is happening around the Earth. They're radio waves that result from interaction between the solar wind and the magnetosphere. 
the magnetic field that shields our planet from solar radiation. These signals result from massive space weather events, but once received on Earth and transformed to sound, they're extremely delicate. Natural radio signals are difficult to hear because they are drowned out by man-made signals given off by power lines, TV, and electrically-powered devices. In order to hear them through a receiver, one needs to get away from the man-made electromagnetic smog that surrounds us. Alternatively, there are enthusiasts who make live VLF streams available on the web, and these are a fascinating listen, providing an opportunity to hear space weather events live as they unfold. I recommend the website abellion.org, run by Paul Nicholson, and I've brought a sample for us to hear of one of the Abellion live streams. I was listening to this geomagnetic storm live as it occurred on the evening of 28th February 2012, which is exactly two years ago last night. According to Paul, the whistlers, or the downward whistling uh, whooshes that you hear, originated with lightning activity in the Indian Ocean, and the crackles and snap came, snaps came from lightning discharges over South America. The disturbed conditions at that time also caused bright auroras over Scandinavia, Iceland and Greenland. So that's not so clear, but I hope you can hear the sort of downward whooshing sounds. Um, a spectrogram is a visual representation of sound, and here is a spectrogram of a section of that whistler recording with time along the horizontal axis and frequency along the vertical. You can see from this how the whistlers sweep through the audio spectrum. Um, whistlers are lightning pulses that have been leaked out into space and travel through ducts in the magnetosphere back to Earth. The high frequencies arrive back before the low frequencies, which gives the characteristic downward whistling sound. I'm interested in the remarkable journey that these signals have undergone prior to arrival at a receiver, and the way that they connect us almost instantaneously with far distant natural events. I've made a number of works that incorporate them. Earth Loop is a permanent sound installation I made for a lift at MK Gallery, where a visitor travels through an, a parallel radio universe, escaping man-made electromagnetic emissions on the ground to arrive at the ionosphere, where natural radio can be heard free from interference. I used VLF signals in Space Ham, an, an episode of Between the Years for BBC Radio 3 that explored the relationship between radio amateurs and astronauts aboard the International Space Station. The Whistler storm we've listened to was incorporated in my work Five Minute Oscillations of the Sun, which I'd like to talk about now. Five Minute Oscillations of the Sun was an outdoor eight-channel sound work that was installed to coincide with the 2012 summer solstice. It combined VLF natural radio signals with the second source I'd like to talk about, another imperceptible signal that originates far beyond our planet. This time these are actually acoustic waves rather than electromagnetic, but despite the fact that they're sound waves, we cannot hear them. They're solar oscillations, the natural acoustic resonances of the Sun. While researching ways to listen to the sun, I found on the web the work of the Bison Research Team in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Birmingham, who do just that. Bison is a helioseismology research facility with a network of six solar observatories that monitor solar oscillations. Helioseismology and astroseismology are the studies of the sun and other stars by observation of their natural acoustic resonances, the music of the stars. The sun resonates like a wind instrument, and oscillations on its surface are detected and monitored by the bison team. 
It was one image in particular that spurred me to contact Bison to find out more. On one of the web pages was a waveform like this, with a button marked Transform beneath it. A click transformed the data from a representation in the time domain that you see here to the frequency domain. Suddenly appeared a type of image that I am very familiar with, a spectrogram denoting frequency content. Frequency content dictates the timbre of an instrument, and I'm accustomed to images showing, say, the frequency content of a flute or a piano or a string, but I was staggered to see a spectrogram that seemed to be showing the frequency content of the sun itself. I contacted Bison and explained that I was making a work and wondered whether the research, would be willing, research team would be willing to share their data with me. Professor Bill Chaplin agreed and provided me with data on real natural solar resonances from which to make the work. The data arriving in my inbox seemed like precious and extremely rare raw material and I couldn't wait to start transforming it to sound in order to hear the sun's overtones. Of course, sound cannot propagate in the vacuum of space and in addition, the sun's waves are extremely low. So to talk about the sun in musical terms, Bison effectively transposed the data um, so that the dominant oscillations can be thought of as a note slightly above D, above middle C in the western scale. For, for five-minute oscillations of the sun, I transpose the data into the sparkling kilohertz range. The data provided information about the power of each frequency within the sun, and I decided to represent the power of a given frequency by its length within the piece. Therefore, the longer tones are the most prevalent within the sun, and the shorter a tone, the weaker its presence in the data. I want to make, wanted to make a kind of exploded, slowly evolving palette of the slow, solar resonances. Hard to say. Let's hear some of them. Five-minute oscillations of the sun alternated every five minutes between an acoustic mode characterized by these bison tones and an electromagnetic mode, which was the VLF natural radio signals. It was installed in a wooden parabolic dome structure that acted as an acoustic lens. The dome amplified and focused the delicate signals while filtering out the surrounding traffic noise, providing a way to listen to the sun upon entering. I thought of this as if crossing a sensory threshold, Stepping out of the light of the sun to experience its sounds contained within the structure of the dome. So continuing the collaboration begun during five-minute oscillations of the sun, I've just started a Leverhulme artist residency 
with the Bison team within the Solar and Stellar Physics Department at the University of Birmingham. Um, the group are part of the NASA Kepler mission that has been monitoring the nat natural resonances of thousands of stars over the past four years. Professor Yvonne Ellsworth and her team have been analysing that data, and I feel privileged to collaborate with scientists conducting world-leading research in this area. Over the coming year, I hope to understand more about the research and use Kepler data to inform my compositional practice, moving beyond our sun to the acoustic resonances of other stars, including those that host newly discovered planets. Um, I'm fascinated by the strange and poetic tonal relationships that are exposed by this data and the opportunity that they provide to open up the hidden dimensions of the stars to our ears. So in summary, the way I've learned to understand the world through sound and through near silence is through active listening and the pursuit of signals beyond the audible. By listening to the natural physical world, I've learned more about it and been inspired to consider my place within it. I hope this goes some way to explaining the ways that I use sound not only to understand, but to describe the world around me through sensory experiences that may offer new ways to listen. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, uh, Caroline. And um, uh, I'm going to hand straight over to Alex Kolkowski, uh, who is going to introduce us to an interesting device. Good afternoon. Um, there were a couple of nice coincidences, actually, from uh, the previous two. Um, uh, talks. I actually did a concert in the Radome in Berlin in September. It's actually open to the public. I don't know when you went there, but it was a, an extraordinary space. I can uh, concur that it's the most incredible acoustic space I've ever been in, played in. Where uh, it's amazing. And also recorded some VLF uh, 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 sounds from uh, an artist on a wax cylinder, which I'll tell you about later. Actually. <laughs> right. Um, uh, some of you actually might have been uh, hoping to hear and, and, and see Evan Grant uh, 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 talking about his uh, cymatics, uh, his very impressive sound-to-image process. Uh, now, uh, what I'm going to talk about uh, seems very far removed and is somewhat antiquarian in, in comparison. Um, we do share uh, a common historical past, namely the early experiments in sound visualisation and inscription by savants and acousticians in the late 18th and 19th centuries, uh, which led inadvertently uh, to the invention of sound recording, or more precisely, to the reproduction of recorded sound in the 1870s. What we have here on stage is an Edison phonograph. Uh, this one's from the early 1900s. And I'm going to use it to play a couple of uh, uh, sound examples. I don't trust the system here at all, so I'm, I brought my own kit. Um, I'm uh, going to um, talk about one of the activities, it's actually quite an old activity, um, in the field of sound recording and playback using um, obsolete technology. And I'm going to talk about listening today to recordings made using this type of apparatus and how I feel it can be an enriching oral experience. And I'll begin with a cylinder recording.
what you've just heard is a recording uh, of a live improvised electronic music, a piece of electronic music by the Japanese uh, New York based musician Ikue Mori. And that was recorded in 2010. And Ikue uh, produced the sounds on her laptop, which were amplified through a loudspeaker、uh, at which I pointed my recording horn. And you can see the setup、uh, on this slide. Now, the recording、uh, itself was made acoustically, and I'll just explain what that means. That's、uh, using only the sound energy emanating from the loudspeaker and collected by the horn.、Uh, this energy vibrates a small diaphragm on the recording head at the other end of the horn,、uh, and attached to this diaphragm is a sharp, a tiny sharp cutting stylus, and this stylus、uh, etches a spiral groove on the recording wax. Consisting of microscopic bumps, actually they're called Hill and Dale. Sort of common name.、Um, these bumps correspond to the vibrations of the diaphragm and the sounds captured by the horn. And to play the recording back is、uh, simply to reverse this process.、Uh, a rounded stylus uh, uh, reads the bumps on the groove and vibrates the diaphragm, and the sounds are reproduced、uh, through a column of air,、uh, through a,、uh, a horn of varying size or shape. Here's a close-up of the machine after recording. Now, why, you may well ask, was this recording made using such anachronistic means? Well, this cylinder is part of an ongoing archive of recordings of musicians, writers, and artists made exclusively on wax cylinders. Each cylinder is a one-of-a-kind object that's also been transcribed digitally and is freely available to hear online on the archive website. Phonographies.org. One purpose of this archive is to mark the passing of the of physical sound storage media by going back to the first stable、uh, recording format, that's after tin foil, of course,、um, the wax cylinder. It's also a response to digital cloning and the disembodied、uh, digital sound file by making a series of one-of-a-kind recordings as physical objects, which are then Paradoxically, released through the ether as MP3s.、Uh, it's also a rediscovery of the joys and pitfalls of the acoustic recording process, but mostly it's a fascination with listening to the results. While there's a, a stated nostalgia for the physical record in this project, the recordings themselves have absolutely nothing to do、uh, with nostalgia. Instead. They engage with the limitations of the medium and experiment with the possibilities of this form of sound writing in, in new ways.、Um, it's a very challenging、um, method of recording, and not everything is easily registered. Soft sounds and voices, in particular, emerge through a patina of surface noises and then slide back into it,、um, and at times they're barely audible. These surface noises—the hiss, pop, and crackle—highlight the materiality of these sound inscriptions, and are as much part of the listening experience as the recorded sounds themselves. Some of the improvising musicians I've recorded actively engage with these sounds. They they hear the cutting needle ploughing the wax as they record through the horn, and they respond to the pops and other extraneous noises as they play. Uh, the electro, the ele- electronic or electroacoustic recordings in the archive,、uh, consisting of sounds associated with contemporary music making, be they digital effects, sine tones, radio frequencies and interferences, or glitches, 
are recorded and reproduced on 19th century technology and media, which, in turn, contributes its own accompanying soundtrack of inherent noises. And this reinforces a sense of anachronism or paracronism or ambiguity. We wonder what exactly we're listening to. I'm going to play another cylinder, and, and rather about listening, this is about lack of... That was a recording of the artist Aaron Williamson singing his version of Tutti Frutti by Little Richard. And it was made in 2009, live in a shopping centre in Camberwell, London, where Aaron, who's uh, dressed up as Enrico Caruso, uh, sang from a popular songbook in a performance entitled Five Penny Opera. Uh, at the same time as he sang, he handed out five P pieces to the bemused passers-by. Now, what's special about this rendition of the song, and some of you have, may have already uh, noticed through the, his particular intonation, is that Aaron is profoundly deaf and sings entirely from memory. Before the onset of his deafness, he, he sang in bands, and he continues to do so. I chose this record as an example uh, because there are very strong links with early sound recording and deafness. For example, Thomas Edison the inventor of the phonograph, had severe hearing impairment, eventually becoming profoundly deaf. Despite his deafness, he was able to hear recorded sounds through listening tubes and described the phonograph as his favourite invention. Also, very early in its history, the phonograph itself was proposed as a, uh, as a principal aid in the cure of deafness, 
Uh, the idea was to uh, play the sufferer very loud sounds uh, through listening tubes and somehow stimulate the inner ear. The profound deafness of Alexander Graham Bell's mother motivated him to study acoustics, which led to inventions such as the telephone, the graphophone, to which we owe the wax cylinder, among other hearing-related devices, as well as work with the deaf. So for me, this is much more than simply a recording about, of a deaf person singing. Uh, there is an added historical depth and meaning to it. I'll end with some observations. Using antiquated technology establishes a strong sense of distance that allows for a more reflective form of listening. A paradoxical consequence of using historical recording technology and media is that the old becomes new. The novelty of an obsolete or antiquated format can delight and stimulate the listener. The act of reviving so-called dead media can reinvigorate our perception of the present, which is heard along with an accompaniment of carved-out noises and surface imperfections, bringing oral attention to the medium and amplifying the materiality of these recordings. The phonographic method of capturing sound, of making inscriptions onto cylinders or discs, further removes the original sound from its source, yet it brings us closer to it. This is contrary to the superficial immediacy and heightened virtual reality of the cloned digital copy. Instead, we experience the original through other fields of sense, through the tangible, visible, and mnemonic properties of a sound that's been transformed into an aged object. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Alex, uh, and to uh, both of our other speakers. We have uh, almost exactly half an hour for uh, questions. Uh, I've, I've been told that I should uh, allow you, if you wish, to make some brief observations, but uh, try to uh, offer a question uh, rather than um, a lengthy statement, just so that we can, uh, we've got time for lots of people to speak. Um, we've got roving microphones, so if you could just wait until they arrive, if you want to ask a question. Um, and also, when they do arrive, uh, could you just say your name and where you're from? And I will try my best to uh, spot anyone who wants to ask a question. There's someone right at the back there. Thanks. Uh, Jan Graf von der Palen, Queen Mary University. Uh, by staggering coincidence, uh, actually last Friday I went to uh, a seminar on geosophology using the Python data. Uh, so this is a, a question directed to Caroline. Um, yeah, uh, fascinating, first of all, like actually hearing you know, what the scientists digging out in terms of data on you know, ways in the sun. I just wondering if you have any upcoming projects you know, of this similar sort of you know, reinterpreting scientific data, you know, that'd be interesting, I'd say. Okay, so um, that was a question about any upcoming projects interpreting science, scientific data. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I'm, I'm now working with the Bison team, um, and they're also working on the Kepler mission. So there's about four years of data that from the Kepler field of view, 
Um, so I've got a period at the university of, uh, well, over the coming year, really. So it's uncertain about what, what will come from that, um, as I've just started out in the last few weeks. But I'm sort of embedded with the, with the astrophysics team, which is a, yeah, quite an unusual position to be in and fantastic. So um, I'm, I'm just going to see what comes of it, really, over the next year. There's lots of data, though, and um, there's all the data on newly discovered planets, which has happened in the last two years or so. It's very exciting. So, yeah, in, in, yeah in, yes, we will be. We've got a small... Um, exhibit at Think Tank Museum in Birmingham at the moment, which is communicating the, the bison work to school children. Um, but there will be more works. Yeah, hopefully large-scale star works. Thank you. Any... Uh, yes, someone in the middle there with the blue shirt. Hello. Uh, my name is Dominic. I'm a, uh, a secondary school science teacher. Um, I teach physics. Uh, it's a, very much an open question, this one, really. I don't know whether this is going to be um, uh, much that comes from it, but certainly for me, one of the reasons that I got into teaching physics was the understanding of, of sound. Uh, I play guitar as well. And um, one of my favourite uh, audio phenomenon is the beating of near frequencies when you're tuning, uh, tuning two strings near each other. I like it particularly because it's sort of like a phantom sound. I don't know if this is the correct terminology. You've got two separate sounds which interact in this way and it creates a very, a very tangible uh, uh, experience, I suppose, sense data from something which is just an accumulation of two different things. So it's sort of an, an, an unreal thing somehow. Have you got any other examples of, of um, oh, I don't know how to put it really, tangible experiences from what is essentially uh, an, a non-tangible uh, yeah, phenomenon. I could, I could give yeah. you... As you mentioned... I'll wait for David to look this way. As you, as you mentioned beats, I mean, beats appear in natural things as well. So in, in Virginia, there's a cave where they've made an entire organ out of stalactites. So if you, if you have rocks made out the right consistency, they'll ring beautifully. And a lot of those have beating tones to them because there's two frequencies in each of those stalactites rather than one because they're not perfectly cylindrical, they're just a bit out. And so anything which is got, you know, it should be almost circularly symmetrical, almost cylindrical, but it's not, will have that warbling tone. And the way you might meet it in a more usual case would be in bells. So if you listen to Big Ben as you wander home or you listen to it on the news probably to get above the traffic noise, you'll notice it warbles as it dies away. And that warble is caused by the fact it's not perfectly symmetrical, not perfectly circularly symmetrical. And in, in the case of, I mean, it could be the casting, it could be certain different thicknesses, but in the case of Big Ben, there's a great big crack in it, which could also be causing the problem. So you hear beats in naturally resonating structures as well. Can I just sort of, there's a sort of similar question I wanted to ask myself, which is about the pleasures that you get from these these sounds. I mean, it's, it's implicit in everything that each of you have said, is that, I mean, it's not just a kind of curiosity, it's not just earning a living doing this, but there is something sensual and pleasurable about experiencing these sounds. And I just, just wondered if you could just explore a little bit that emotional relationship that you have with the sounds that you're engaged in discovering or, or, or making. In my case, it's a, a sort of growing um, 
interest in noise, I guess. And I think, I think it's, well, especially in the English language, noise has a, has a bad uh, reputation. It comes from nausea, I think, I believe, or something to stem from it. But uh, I mean, in, other, in other countries, for instance, uh, I lived for a while in Germany, and, and people would talk about Rauschen. And Rauschen, uh, um, uh, for, for noise, is more the sound of the environment, for instance. So it has other connotations, really. It's to do with sounds of nature rather than nausea, for instance. And, uh, but it was, I suppose it was an increasing interest in noise and the surface of, of recording uh, media, um, especially the, the, the more older kinds of recording media, uh, and, and, and somehow using that musically. Music, music. I mean, I used to collect records just for the, the run-out grooves, really, just to, you know, if they were interesting, old shellac recordings. And things like that was wasn't interested in, in that or, or recording or blank media especially uh, the more distressed the better because that would give you particular kinds of noise. Um, so yes, yeah, so I suppose it, it becomes you you can become obsessed with it maybe it becomes kind of a hobby and a, an obsession really. But I, I think increasingly I think certainly in, in, in a lot of experimental music making it's become a, a major form of inquiry. I mean it's uh, uh, noise has become elevated. To, to the state, uh, to art, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a component, I mean, of, of, of music making. I mean, there, there are uh, many music, and uh, uh, noise artists who intentionally use it to subvert, uh, to be radical. I mean, they're thinking of, in, in, in Japan, for instance, it's, it's a subculture. Um, it's, dis, it's probably uh, thought of by, by society as disgusting, and maybe, and that spurs them on, you know, and to do that, to make, to make noise uh, music, um, um, yeah. Whereas in, in my, I mean, in it's yeah, but it's it's really to do with the textures and sounds of and the details of, that you can you can hear in in, in, in noise, really. Caroline, I don't know if you want to well, admit to the, your particular pleasures. And um, I mean, going back to the sort of interference and the beating tones, which is something that I'm really absolutely fascinated by and, and continue to be, fa I don't lose the fascination with it. I think, um, and those spectral tones that can happen, um, for example, I th it was in a performance by Alvin Lucia, a piece, Burden Person Dining, seeing him perform that, where ghostly um, tones, are, are, you know, are created in the room that actually go into your ears. It's a, it's a really physical experience and quite extraordinary and um, see, experiencing that performance um, got me really very hooked on, on sort of using sound as, as, a, as a material, you know, and trying to mould it and trying to move it places. And, um, you know, that, that definitely is something that continues to fascinate me and, I, I, you know, I feel will continue to. Yeah. It's, it's quite hard to pick because I sort of collected such a wide range of sounds. There's such a wide range of emotional responses that I could kind of cite. So... If you look at natural sounds, I've already mentioned birdsong this afternoon. You know that has that's good for you know that's good for our well-being. You know it's, it's, it's positive for our health. Uh, or you, you've heard you know spaces which are very reverberant, and, and, and reverberant space is just beautiful. And, they, and then with music in them, there can huge diversity of emotional responses. Um, so it's very hard to pick at specific emotions because I could pick lots. But I think one thing I would bring to it as well is that. In, as a scientist, I would always be, as well as thinking of it emotionally, I'd also be working out what's going on. 
And that's something I find quite interesting, going, touring around to f- listen to these places. I almost had to listen in two ways. I had to go and enjoy and have the emotional response, the human response. And I had to think, what is going on? Because I've got to explain this later on. So I had to, you have to almost consciously switch modes of listening. This is actually a question for Trevor. Um, you were uh, going back to this chap talking about these. Shall I introduce myself yes, first? Quite Sorry. I did, I did say. Yes, you did. You did. Uh, my name is John Naylor, and I was a physics teacher. I am not now. I'm retired. But just going, uh, 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 this is a question for Trevor. Um, we were talking about beats earlier. Uh, I heard beats in the sand dune uh, uh, sample. You, I assume you did as well. Yeah, there's the sound a sort of, you know, a, a thrum. Yeah, there's definitely a thrum. I would, I would say that the sound system here is adding some distortion, so not everything you're hearing is quite what's on the recordings. I would just warn you. But I think in there, there is a thrum, because it's, it's a natural phenomenon. So as you move down, maybe the grains of sand are slightly different sizes. Yeah. The depth of the loose sand varies. And that, it's still arguments about what actually creates that sound. And what's, you know, scientists like to write these papers where they like to say so-and-so is writing rubbish. This is my theory, it's correct. But so there'll be some variations in the sand as you move down the dune. And, and that, you know, those, that recording was me going down maybe 20 metres of dune by the yes. bottom. And that's probably why it was changing a little as you, yeah. as you kind of went down it. It's probably depending on how fast I was scooting say, down on my backside. I have to say it sounded very much like a beat to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, as you say, the phenomenon is not fully understood, so... Yeah, the, the, I mean, the best theory, I, in my mind, is it relates to the grain, the frequency relates to the grain size, so that's disputed. Um, but there's some recent work in France which seems to indicate that's probably the case. So if the grains are all the same size, you should just get one frequency. But as I scooted down, I remember, not on that recording, suddenly the sound changing pitch. So there must have been either a different pinch, mm-hmm. a patch of sand or something had changed. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, over there. Uh, my name is Madiha. I'm a student at LSE, and my question is very brief to uh, Professor Trevor. Uh, what's the name of the tune you played from Stonehenge? It was very beautiful. Oh, the Stonehenge tune. I'll have to look it up because it was a colleague who created it, so I, th- I think it might have been specially composed. I think it was um, Cold, uh, oh. Haley Night, and I think it sounded to me like M- M- Martin McCarthy, mm. possibly. I don't know. Carthy, sorry, Martin Carthy, I think it sounded like. I think you could probably find it on the web if you looked up, because it's a recording that's been used, so you probably can find the source of it. If not, give me an email. I'll, I'll, I'll ask Bruno, my colleague, what it was. I find it quite amusing that they, they obviously had to have an old recording to play in Stonehenge, but they didn't go that very far, did they, to actually find, you know, as long as it's a bit older than, you know, this century, that'll sound all right. Um, uh, there, was, um, there was someone just there. Um, and next... Uh, Back, back, three rows from back, and if we've got time, we'll come to you as well. So. Thank you. So, hi, um, my name is Rob. Uh, I'm a multimedia producer at UCL. Um, I do. Uh, I've done a series of kind of uh, soundscapes around UCL, um, and I hand out recorders to uh, sound recorders to academics as they go out in the field work and that sort of thing. So I'm interested in kind of the technical side of things. Alex talked a lot about uh, the instrument that he uses and why he uses that to record his sounds. I was wondering if from Caroline and Trevor, if we could get um, your thoughts on the instruments that you use and why you use particular recorders to pick up on different things. So, um, yeah, I, I use a 
my most trusty piece of equipment is a, a Zoom H4N, which comes everywhere with me, really. Um, it's, it's been put... One of the quite fascinating recordings I, I made with it, I was quite interested in... I wanted to hear the um, resonances of lift strings quite badly, and that's not something you can usually get to. So when I made a work for MK Gallery in a lift, I managed to put the Zoom recorder on the lift and not go with it and send it up um, to record the strings by itself and bring it back down. That's actually the only time I've sent my recorder off by itself, in fact, you know, and it came back, reported back faithfully with uh, the recordings. That really is the thing that I use the most. I, I use a VLF receiver to pick up um, uh, VLF, but I do tend to find that that the H4N is so handy, different inputs, etc. It's great. So that's my main piece of kit. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, rather than go for lists of, lists of kit, I mean, I'll, I'll just try and answer it slightly differently. I think working acoustics, uh, acoustics research centre, I have more kit to borrow than I could possibly ever want. So it's a question of what do you want? So, you know, do you want a hydrophone for going underwater? Do you want to use an accelerometer to measure actual vibrations of structures? Do you want to go... I mean, the, the recording inch and down was used with precision measurement gear, which is normally used for very high-tech measurements and that kind of stuff. So a huge variety of stuff that I've used. One thing I found really useful is uh, just very small recorders. And I think one of those things which is great is I've got little Roland recorder which has got binaural recorders in them. So binaural, for those who don't know, is the idea of recording what's happening at your ear canal so you can render the spatial sound later. But I, it's binaural, it's okay, but what's great is it looks like a pair of headphones. If you want to make covert recordings, you can go and make them with that and no one has any idea you're recording, they just think you're listening to your phone or your MP3 player. Um, okay, um, just, uh, we've got someone at the back who's uh, next. Hi, um, my name's Umi, I'm an interaction designer. I work in Shoreditch. We're working with the um, visually impaired um, so we're trying to do kind of wayfinding for the visually impaired. So a question I have probably for the wider group is, is um, do you have any examples of how the visually impaired kind of map their environment and their space to kind of, kind of aid wayfinding? I mean, certainly there are visually impaired people who echolocate. Um, it's quite rare, but there are, there are some famous examples of people who have learned to echolocate. So they go... They go and make clicks, essentially, and listen to reflections off sound. And there is those David... Oh, I'm trying to find it. Nish, 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 some of that. He's quite, he's quite an advocate for it and wants to train people to do it. So that's one Kish, way. David Kish. Kish, that's it. So I didn't quite get the name right. So there are people who actually do, do the same as you would get with bats and things like that, actually use sound to visualise the space. So you could look at that. Um, so we've got someone at the back there. If we can get a Alan Seagull, London Metropolitan University. Just a quick question for Trevor about the replica Stonehenge recording. Uh, where was the microphone and the speaker in the? Was it in, in right in the centre of, of, of the Stonehenge replica or elsewhere? And they made recordings in a variety of places. It probably wasn't right in the centre, but actually, you don't get any strong changes in acoustics around the middle of Stonehenge. People kind of think it's because it's circular that you'll get some weird focusing effects. Mm. But the Stonehenge, the full model, has stones within the big rings. You've got the big ring with the big Saracen stones, but there's another ring inside, and that tends to mean any of the focusing effects aren't heard. 
So it doesn't matter where roughly you are, but I don't actually... Again, I'd have to look up to see which particular recording I was sent to use. Um, so I can't give you a definite answer, but it doesn't make too much difference in the space. Okay, thank you. Hi, um, my name's Kao Jae Young. I'm a visual artist, and um, I've used sound in video works, but also um, I've created projects whereby I've invited people to send in sounds linked to the chakras, for example, and then um, I've translated that visually through light installations. And I was just, I'm really quite interested in the relationship between the different senses and hearing, especially. And I was wondering if you could please tell me, sorry, my hair's kind of, (laughs) um, if you could please tell me what, um, which other sense (laughs) um, you would um, put quite a great importance on in amplifying or heightening our auditory um, perceptions. And is that, is that something we can it's have a, just an answer open, from, from yeah. everyone? Okay. I would say very strongly touch. I mean, for me, um, trained as a violinist, touch is very important. But also, I think, uh, in, for instance, in uh, medicine and auscultation, so with stethoscopes and forms of hearing internal organs, I mean, touch is very important. But I think it's... Uh, so it's a kind of a kinesthetic approach, really. But, um, yeah... Touch, more than sight, really. Sorry, in in what way? In terms of uh, in in terms of uh, together with sound, you mean? In, yeah, in terms yeah. of, of heightening the sonic <laughs> experience. Experience. So, guess, yeah. is that in terms of touching something that would be representative of sound, or in terms of playing an instrument? Uh, well, within certainly with playing an instrument, it's it's, it's bound with yeah. it, really. Um, in this kind of work that I do, and it's possibly one of the reasons why I'm more inclined to sort of work with physical media, is because it's, it's the sense of touch. I want to touch the objects or that I that I work with, rather than work with uh, uh, digi- digi- uh, digital music. I work di- with digital music as well. I mean, but it's, uh, it's inescapable. But um, t- yeah, it's it's more of a, this tactile thing is, is is important for me. But I think generally it's quite important. Let's say in uh, for, for diagnostics for, for in medicine and even in, in you know in car mechanics and they feel the vibrations actually it's a um, 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 a little known um, hearing aid from I think from the late 19th century was actually sort of a, through bone conduction you still get them if you've got it. if you've got the particular kind of hearing loss yeah. where your cochlea still exists you can use bone conduction hearing aid if your middle ear is damaged that's right and people used to carry fans that used to bite into and it was quite effective at actually amplifying the sound so if they had a, a, a hearing loss that they would actually bite into a fan that would uh, that they would feel the vibrations that would amplify the sound for them. I mean, I think quite often with sound, there can be ambiguity as to what the sound is played on its own. So I could play you the sound of waves on a beach, and I could play you the sound of cars driving past on a road every so often on a wet day, and it will sound really very similar. And I, so I think you can play around with the other senses to actually play around with what the sound is. Um, and in fact, that's been used in scientific experimentation, where they were looking at putting people... They were looking at tranquility, and they were putting people in a, a brain scanner... And they used the same sound file. They didn't tell the people this was the case. They used the same sound file, but they changed the image. And they said, now you're listening to a motorway, 
Now you're listening to a beat sound. And people use different parts of their brains to process, and the connectivity of their brains changed depending whether they felt it was a man-made sound or a natural sound. So I think you can play games with some of the ambiguous sounds that you can get. Thank you. I think um, we have time for possibly... <laughs> we haven't got time for all the questions. I think what we could do is maybe quickly gather, say, three questions, uh, lump them together, and then have some brief answers. And I think we just have to leave it at that. So um, there's uh, a man at the back there. There's uh, a woman in the middle row there at the end. And there's someone down here, a gentleman at the front here. Perhaps we can get a microphone to him immediately afterwards. So can we gather up three questions and put them all at once? Is that okay? Uh, Okay, I'm Guys Vincent. Um, Though I live in London, I run a cattle herd, and incidentally, the soundscape of a cattle herd at night is a lovely thing. But that aside, it's easy to fool cattle with a recording of yourself. They really hear you. Any dog, as far as I know, you can't fool, because I think, uh, slightly bearing on the last person's work, they actually hear what they're really hearing, and they're not mistaking it for you. So, A, am I right in understanding dogs like that? And B, is there any recording equipment that you can use to fool dogs? Because that would be awfully useful. <laughs> okay, thank you. So if we can uh, have the, the, the next question, and then if the microphone can come round here as well. Thank you. Hello, my name's Louise, and I'm a sociology student from Goldsmiths. Um, so my question's mainly to Trevor, but maybe everyone would like to weigh in. And Trevor, you mentioned about the domination of the visual in in your talk um, and I want and this means that there's a certain kind of a lot of language to talk about what we see and I was wondering if there's a if you found when you were writing there's a lack of language surrounding sound and the other senses I guess thanks thank you and Pauline Rye I'm a retired journalist I suppose in that uh, if we look at the real life and there are two outstanding examples and the first is about Mandela in his declining years and the responses which he had around bedside or whatever. And more recently, we have the example of Michael Schumacher as a result of an accident. And, uh, and there again, it's been discovered that of all the perceptions and reactions, the strongest, as it were, was the human voice. And afterwards, the touch, etc. And so I was just sort of wondering about your opinions on that. Okay, so just a, a, a quick recap, and I'm, I'm grossly simplifying these here. Can we fool dogs? Uh, can we transcend the, the domination in language of visual ways of describing the world? Um, and uh, have you got any sort of thoughts or insights into this notion of the, the sheer power of the human voice to actually get through in situations like that when someone is... Uh, a, lost consciousness in some way. You want me to do all three in a quick... I, I'm, I'm looking at you, but I'm a, you can all pitch into well, this one and we can answer I, those three questions in four and a half minutes. I'm right. Sure. I'll t- dogs try recording at the frequencies they can hear, so it might be the high frequencies that they're picking up, maybe. Mind you, your voice doesn't produce that much. There's a guess for you. On the, uh, on the language side, there, it's interesting because when I did write the book, it was one of the things I spent a lot of time is working at how to describe sounds, and it doesn't come naturally... And I think, I think poets it comes better to. But actually sounds, they are difficult to describe in words. And there's actually a wider lexicon of sounds 
words and you can think. I mean, we think of maybe things like chirp and twang, but there's actually quite a lot of them, but they're mostly not used. They're kind of a bit obsolete. And I'll give you an example. I was recording uh, for Radio 4 or something where I, t- I was recording a piece. I was having to impersonate David Attenborough, funnily enough, you bring that up. And I talked about the churring of the crickets. And my, my, my producer said, we'll have to redo it. You didn't say chirping, which is what the script has said. And I said, no, churring is a perfectly good English word because I haven't have looked it up the day before for my book. So there is actually quite a lot of sound words. They're just not used. So I think there, are, there is more than we think. Um, and uh, in terms of the voice, uh, I think the, probably the reason the voice lasts longer is because of the, the fact we use it as an early warning system, essentially. So it's what's, it's what's keeping ear out for danger. And from an evolutionary perspective, we might think of our voice as being about speaking or music, but first of all, it was an early warning system. That's what we probably primarily learned that started off with hearing for, is to listening out for danger. And, and therefore, when you're dozing off, that's your last sense to check you're safe when you're dozing off. Okay. Um, regarding the dogs, don't know, but I concur <laughs> that that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> um, the second question. Language. Oh, the lack of language. Yes. I mean, really, when I write about sound, I often write text, and then I find myself stripping out the word resonates, as, because I always seem to write resonates because it's that word that is so useful that describes it, and then replacing it. I agree there are words um, for sound. You know, there's an overwhelming uh, visual bias, in a way, in our language. But, for example, yesterday I was trying to work out was there a word for an oral vantage point, which doesn't seem that much to ask, but I can't find it, so I called it an oral vantage point. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I think we have to work harder to describe things there through is. sound. It's point of oh, good, yes, okay, brilliant, yeah. <laughs> Very good. And uh, sorry, the, vo- the human voice, I just wanted to say, um, it really just an observation, not really, but that it, it, it being the first sound that we all hear in the womb, it's a pretty significant, you know, uh, and very deep um, sound for us all. Alex. Uh, Dogs. I think you have to have some kind of uh, smell uh, spray or something, <laughs> pheromones or whatever, into a company that you know the loudspeaker that sprays uh, a scent. Um, what was the other thing? The um, language. Language. Oh, I'm all for onomatopoeia. Why not? You know, we can invent sound, invent words for sounds, which? and I've, which we we have lots of new sounds every day. So let's just invent. Whatever it is, I'm not going to. I'm not going to attempt it now. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of the voice, yes, I think that maybe there's not enough study about this. I'm not, I don't know. Maybe there is, and that we're not aware of. But I have nothing to add about that. But all right, we we thank you very much. We have to stop there. I, I just want to thank you for coming to this event, and a reminder that uh, Trevor will be hovering with his broken arm over his books. <laughs> Uh, which are on sale in a stall somewhere outside. And finally, I just want to thank our three speakers again for a really interesting, fascinating talk. Thank you.